Open your Bibles, if you will, to Acts chapter 4, and then open your Bibles as well to Luke chapter 24. Acts chapter 4, if you're using a pew Bible, that's page 912, and then uh, Luke 24, that is page 884 in the New Testament, towards the back of the Bible. How many of you have special plans, whether it's for uh, your own mother or it's for your spouse today? How many? All right. Um, I told Rachel this morning, I said, you know, this is your special day. Uh, in fact, there, there's, a, there's a, uh, a roast in the crock pot, and, uh, and I said, you know what, you don't even need to clean anything today because it can all wait till Monday. Take it easy. It'll still be there Monday. <laughs> so, this is, Mom, this is your day off if you're a mother today. It can all wait till Monday. <laughs> this morning, uh, we're not going to be talking about a, a Mother's Day sermon specifically. But yet in reality, this is very much a Mother's Day sermon. Because if you are living your motherhood role out of anything else than what we are going to talk about today, you are going to run yourself empty. You are going to find your identity in all of the wrong things. You're going to find your identity in how, many, how, many, how much stuff your kids can be involved. In how infrequently you yell at your kids and lose your temper. You'll find your identity in your momometer of how good of a mother you are and how good you compare to all the other mothers in your circle of associations. You see, this morning we are looking at salvation. He will save. And if we are not living out of the reality of the salvation that Christ has accomplished for us, then we will be living out of something. And anything other than Christ is going to disappoint, it's going to leave us empty, and it's going to leave us to our own resources. So this is very much a Mother's Day message. In fact, last week we looked at the teaching of the Bible regarding sin, the doctrine of sin. And if you remember from last week, you may, you may naturally ask the question, well, Pastor Adam, if everything you say regarding sin and its effects is true, then how could everything ever possibly be made right? How could there ever possibly be a good ending to this story that we call life? And this is an excellent question because as we ended last week, we saw that there is hope amidst the chaos of life. There is hope amidst the tragedies of life. There's hope amidst your failed motherhood or fatherhood. There is still hope. A mere human 
Scripture teaches us could never make such a mess right. Why? Because as the Scriptures all too frequently show us, mankind, humanity, we're a part of the problem. We're not a solution. That is why if you, if you pick up books from the bookstore, whether they're under the Christian label or not, or you hear sermons, or whatever it is, and everything is about puffing up yourself as an individual, man, the, the outlet that you're plugging into is all wrong. Because the Bible says that we in and of ourselves are a part of the problem, not a part of the solution. The solution is only found outside of ourselves. That's the good news of the gospel. That the good news is that when I look within, I don't see anything commendable. I don't see any solutions to the issues that I face. I have to look outside of myself for a rescuer, a deliverer, and guess what? That's good news. As long as we're looking within, we find bad news. You see, our only possible hope in the midst of the chaos that sin presents into this world and in our lives, the only possible hope has to be in a divine creator to reset as right what has gone so drastically wrong. That is where our hope is. And that is what Scripture tells us has happened and is happening. Today what we're going to do is we are going to look at the salvation that God has provided. And this morning we're simply going to take an introductory look at this. We're going to see how does the story of salvation, the very story of the Scriptures, how does that unfold in the Bible? How is that significant to me? And next week we're going to understand where this salvation is sourced and how this salvation requires a personal response from every individual. In other words, this is not just something that, that somehow a parent makes that gets passed down to a child or a grandchild. It's not a decision a spouse makes that gets passed on to the other spouse or that a friend makes that gets passed on to the other friend. This is a personal response. And as we've mentioned so often in this series, the goal of our time together is that God's people... That we may be called to what? To both know and live. Let's pray. Father, as we take time this morning to study your word, Father, as a church body, men, women, children, single, married, husbands, wives, dads, moms, whatever the case may be, Father, would you, through the Holy Spirit, would you instruct our hearts? God, each and every day we're living out of the resources of something or someone. Lord, when we look at our hearts, our salvation can be sourced in so many different things. Lord, it can be sourced in our work, 
It can be sourced in our friends, our family. It can be sourced in our own abilities, our own failures, our own successes. Lord, we know what your word tells us, that our identity, our salvation has to be sourced in you. So Lord, may we not just check off of a list a bunch of facts that we already know with our head, but would you convict us of how we are knowing this with our heart and living in light of it. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we are going to look at this grand story of redemption. If there's one story which encompasses the entire scripture, it is the story of God's redemption. There are many little stories that spurn off of that main story. But we can't lose sight of the forest for the trees. We have to realize that Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is simply telling one story. This is the grand story of redemption. This is a drama that portrays itself in four scenes. And we are going to look at these four scenes this morning in order to understand how to navigate through the Scriptures. The first scene that the Bible opens with is the scene of creation. This grand story of redemption begins with creation. And in this first scene of the grand drama, we see from the beginning pages of Genesis that God creates. He creates simply from His spoken Word. Everything is new. Everything is untainted by sin. As we looked at when we, we talked about the, the, the doctrine of creation and the doctrine of sin, the Bible says that everything God made was good. It was very good. No corruption. And we saw that God's reign, His glory was to shine forth from the garden where He made man and woman and they as His representatives were to spread that glory across the face of God's glorious creation worldwide. They were to extend the reign of God In this element of creation, we see that there is simply one realm. God's reign. God's kingdom. And this kingdom was on earth as it is in heaven. Because there was no sin in the world. Adam and Eve were simply to take this glorious reign that was focused in Eden... And as they populated the earth, and as generation after generation sought God's glory and sought to live in obedience, submission to Him, the world would be populated with His image bearers, and God's glory would shine across everything that He had created. But as you know, it doesn't take long for the second scene of this grand story of redemption to take place. And that is the fall. 
As we talked about with our, with our uh, teaching on sin, mankind quickly rebels. The one command that God gave Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the, um, of the, uh, the knowledge of good and evil that was in the midst of the garden, right next to the tree of life, what happens? Adam and Eve are tempted, and they fall. Mankind rebels, in other words, against God. This one kingdom, this one realm of God's rule and reign. Adam and Eve said, I want to rise above this kingdom. I want to rise above this rule and this reign. I want to be the king. Just like the serpent, uh, the snake, Satan is whispering in our ear. Could there truly be more than God's saving reign? Could there be more that God is withholding from us? As we talked about last week, as a theologian R.C. Sproul states, this was cosmic treason. Mankind rebels. Thus, sin enters into the world. Now you have a change that takes place in God's perfect creation. That now we go from from one rule, one realm, to two. As sin enters into the world, we see that God's rule in heaven, as it is in earth, is now broken. And you see the, the realm of God's rule in heaven broken from that which is on earth. Mankind is now in opposition to God. Mankind now has a broken relationship to God. And while there's hope, as God promised to send forth an offspring from, the sea, from, from, from Eve to undo what Adam has done, we see that that doesn't negate the reality of now these two realms. The realm of God, the realm of Satan, the realm of sin. And here you see this drama of redemption that Scripture seeks to unpack from Genesis to Revelation now becomes more complex because it is no longer just an issue of Adam and Eve being fruitful, multiplying, spreading God's glory to the earth. Now there is a problem. How in the world is this ideal going to be realized? How was this ever going to take place? And you see the reality of death as you talk, uh, read in Genesis of the generations that go by and each one dies. And then you get to uh, further generations and you see the, 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 the line of Cain and, and the wickedness and, and the opposition against God all the way till you get to, to the Tower of Babel. We're just like Adam and Eve. They want to be their own gods. They don't want to spread to the face of the earth. They want to build a tower to attain to God's greatness. But that brings us to the third scene in this drama of redemption. And that is the very scene of 
God's redemption. This realm of God's redemption runs throughout the entirety of Scripture just like the reality of of the fall runs through the entirety of Scripture. You see, the drama of Scripture is different than watching a normal drama on TV that has set scenes and, and they're cut off to go to the next scene. These scenes all tie in with one another. So at the same time that you see God's outworking of redemption, his plan of redemption, you still see the effects of the scene of the fall running parallel alongside that. And the scene of redemption that God establishes is based upon God's holy promises. All the way back to the garden, when God does in Genesis 3.15 promise an heir that would undo what Adam did. But we see the fulfillment of those promises as well in this grand narrative, this grand story of Scripture. That God does indeed send. He sends His only Son. Jesus does indeed rescue. He gives His life on the cross to do what man could never do to perfectly pay for the sins of humanity, of of His people. And yet to be able, because He was God in the flesh, to say, it is finished. The judgment, the wrath, has been completed. You see, even if, which you never could, but even if you had a perfect human being, you could never have this because we're born in our sin nature, but let's say you had a perfect human being and he went to a cross to say, I'm going to suffer for, this, for your sins. I'm going to pay the penalty. What's the problem with that? Because he's simply on par with us, he would have to hang on that cross for eternity because that judgment never ends. But because Jesus was God in the flesh. That penalty could be endured and Jesus could say, it is finished. Judgment has been met. From this rescue of Jesus, the Bible tells us that the new creation, going back to scene one, has now begun. You see, many times we think of this new creation that God is is, uh, forming. We think of that just in Revelation 21. No, the Scriptures tell us that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Literally, if you were to read that from the original languages, if anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. He is the new creation. In other words, we being saved individuals are a part of this this new creation that God is starting. Jesus was the beginning of that when He rose again from the dead. And now we, as the first fruits of that new creation, are given a new heart by God that now has relationship with Him just like Adam and Eve had. So if you're a believer today, you are a part of the new creation community. 
your friends, your family members, your brother, your sister, your children, your co-workers, without Christ, are still a part of seeing one creation being having Adam as their representative, being dead in sin. So this new creation has begun. And what we see here, the one realm, the one kingdom that was in the garden, God's rule in heaven as it was on earth that Adam and Eve were to spread, then broken into these two kingdoms, these two realms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom, the, 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 the order of this world, now through Jesus we start to see these two kingdoms becoming one again. The remolding that through His people, God's will on in heaven also begins to manifest itself on earth. And then we get to the fourth and the final scene in this grand story of redemption, which is the consummation, the climactic end, the end of the, be- uh, of the beginning. And we see at this consummation or this this climactic event, we see that Jesus returns. We see a completed new creation. We see a removal of sin. Not only from our presence, our our lives and our bodies, the effects of sin, but the effects of sin in this world. And we now see this one realm of God's eternal reign just as the goal was in Genesis 1 and 2. God's glory encompasses the entire globe of this new earth. His representatives, His image bearers now cover the face of the world. And we we rule we reign with Him for all eternity. Folks, in a nutshell, in a 20-minute nutshell, that is the grand story of redemption. You see, God's plans are not thwarted. In fact, one visual way to show this, if we go to the next slide, and I've shown you this picture before, but if you are more visually oriented, this is a way to view the grand story of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration or consummation. Folks, listen, no matter how bad of a mother you feel right now, No matter how bad you feel you have blown it, no matter what your circumstances are right now, where you're thinking, man, I can't even think of of eternity, I can't even think of tomorrow, let alone eternity. I just feel so swamped and stressed, and, and things are just so difficult right now. Listen, if you are a follower of Jesus, a true follower of Jesus, you are on the trajectory towards restoration. 
irregardless of us. Amen? That is our hope. Our hope is that God's plans and purposes are going forward despite our own feebleness and frailty. But the difficulty we have in understanding these things is the second aspect to this grand story of redemption that I'd like to talk with you about. It's not only these four scenes or this drama, but it is the conflict in this drama. Because there is indeed conflict. Wouldn't it be great if every day was like a Sunday morning where we can just come together, we can worship God together, we can study His Word, we can have great fellowship? That is a picture of eternity. God's people unified, God's people enjoying the presence of God, God's people worshiping Him, being active and about That is a picture of eternity, but we're not there yet. We just get pictures and glimpses right now here on earth. I don't think there will be as many droopy eyelids, though, in eternity. (laughs) But there's a conflict in every one of these four scenes that you see, there's conflict. Creation, what happens? There goes that crafty snake, that crafty serpent. He's coming to make his trouble. He's coming to try to present a counterfeit to what God has planned. The fall, there's obvious conflict there, is there not? Now there's sin into the world. How is God's plans and purposes going to be realized? You get to redemption, and there is huge conflict. You have the temptation of Satan with Jesus trying to get him to skip the cross. A a very plan that Satan himself did not comprehend. What is Jesus doing here? And you see this, this in Satan tempting Jesus to have him forego the cross. And then you see at the same time later, Satan is entering into a person like Judas to have him betray Jesus. So you see that the, the limitless plans of God Satan himself didn't even really understand. We see the conflict as we are living today in the already, the not yet. We are, we're, we're living in this realm of redemption and we're the first fruits of God's restoration at the, at the, the, the last days. But yet we're still running parallel to the fall. And man, is there conflict in our lives, is there not? As Paul says, the things we desire to do, we do not do. The things we we don't want to do, those are the things we have a tendency of doing. There's conflict when we seek to have a desire to serve the Lord. Many times there's rejection that is faced. There is, there is social issues that one has to say, you know what, I want to follow Jesus even more than what others think of me. You know what, I'm going to be faithful to the Lord even though I don't understand what's going on right now with my health, with my life circumstances, with where it seems God has led me. 
But the important point that we must realize is that Jesus overcomes all conflict where we ourselves have failed time and time again. Listen, it doesn't matter how many words there are, Jesus always has the final word, amen? Isn't it tempting to to want to have in an argument the last word? I mean, you, you 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 can know, and because we're all humans, you can know that a conversation is going to accomplish nothing and yet be involved in that conversation for one plus hours. Why? Because you think, I want to have the final word. Maybe if I put it this way, they'll get it. Listen, Jesus has the final word. That's why the Bible says that God sits in heaven and he laughs at the rebellion, the foolishness of the people of this world. Because he doesn't need to argue. He doesn't need to try to get his point across. He knows that he has the final word. But not only do we view this grand drama, and not only do we view the conflict that is always in this drama, but we also have to view and see the hero of this drama and in case you, you, you've been daydreaming and you haven't got it yet, it's Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is the hero of the Bible. Listen, it's not Moses. It's not Adam. It's not Israel. It's not the church. It's, 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 it's not Paul. Although he, I mean, he wrote most of the New Testament for goodness sake, but he's not the hero. It's Jesus. If you're in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, look at what it says here. In this sermon that Peter and John are giving before this hostile council, they proclaim boldly, it says, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Folks, if we're looking for salvation in anything or anyone other than Jesus, then there's no hope. So let's apply this in two different ways. First of all, are you here today And you have never, while you may know that you are a sinner, and maybe you even know, maybe you even know some of what the Bible says, and, and there's a temptation to say, yeah, 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 I believe that, yeah, or maybe that's true. I could see where they're coming from. But you have never said, no, it's not just the fact that there is sin and that, yeah, I do sin. This is a reality in my life that I have a need. I am a sinner. I am condemned to God's judgment and wrath. And I see what Jesus has accomplished. 
And I see that he is the only way to find rescue. And man, I am willing to turn from all of these sins that I cling to in my life. Because I see my need of a rescuer, I am willing to turn from those things, to look to Jesus to save me, to cleanse me from my sins. And even to help me find victory in those sins. But man, I'm turning from being the master of my own life to saying, Jesus, I look to you and what you have done, and I want to follow you. If you have not done that today, Jesus is not the hero of your life. In fact, Jesus will be the condemner of your life. Because what he has offered has been spurned. It has been rejected. But let's take this to a second group of people, those of us who are his followers. And while we do not get saved over and over again in our Christian life, Jesus saves us once. The humility of saving faith the repentance of saving faith, of of being willing to say, God, I see my sin. I want to turn from it. I want to look to you. The complete reliance upon a rescuer in our life, man, that is a daily decision. It's a saving decision in the sense of being in God's family one time. But it is a sanctifying decision, a growth in your Christian life every day of your life. When was the last time you have seen your sin? You have seen your self-reliance. And man, you have been broken and have repented and looked back to your Savior. Because it's Mother's Day, we think specifically of mothers. Man, what a temptation for self-sufficiency when you're a mom. To think that it's up to me. That the welfare of my kids is entirely upon me. To think, boy, unless my child is involved in these eight things, man, they're going to miss out on life. To think that I have to be the one that ultimately gives an account for how my children turn out. Listen, all that, you know what that says? You're the hero of your own story. You're the hero of your family. Dad, same thing. Maybe you're a supervisor at work, same thing. Whatever position you're at. Maybe you're a student and, you, and you're, you're, just, you're, you're, you're trying to look to your future and what God has for you and, and you're treating yourself like you're the own hero of your story that if you don't do this right and do that right, well, my future's ruined. You see, that is denying the very salvation, that, that, that the, the very essence of the salvation that Jesus has accomplished for you, the fact that you are not your own rescuer, you are not your own hero. 
You see, only the Holy Spirit can specifically apply this principle to your life. But ask yourself, where am I seeking to be the hero of my own story? Listen, if if Jesus is the hero of the Bible, what makes ourselves think we can be the hero of our own lives? You see, Jesus is not only the hero of the Bible, Jesus is the focal point of the Bible. If you would flip over to Luke chapter 24... Many of you are familiar with this story. We're going to look at it in a little bit more uh, detail, but I just want to pinpoint for you verse 27 right now. Jesus, with the two men walking from the road to Emmaus after Jesus is uh, raised from the dead, it says, Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In all the scriptures. You see, all the scriptures point to Jesus. So as we look at this idea of Jesus being the hero of the Bible and the need for him to therefore be the hero of our lives, this begs the question, how do you, as verse 47 says, how do you interpret the Bible? Do you pick up the Bible and think that this is my self-help manual to help me in, in these very specific questions I have? And I may never turn to that Bible any other time, but man, I got this life decision, so let's see what direction the Bible points me to. Do you look at the Bible as simply being a yes and no book? Do you look at the Bible as simply all about you? What is your interpretation of the Scripture? A more technical way of saying this is, what is your hermeneutic? A hermeneutic is a big word that simply means, how do you process and interpret the Scriptures? I can guarantee you, if you view the Bible through the lens of yourself, man, it is the most boring book you've ever read. It is is simply a burden. Why? Well, because the Bible condemns me every day of my life when I see that I don't measure up. And the Bible is just, if, if my hermeneutic is just, it's a self-help manual, the Bible has a bunch of irre- irrelevant facts. I don't need to worry about genealogies and sacrifices and all of these extra details if I'm just worried about me. <laughs> what use is there for that? Give me a third of the Bible. Give me, give me the, the, the commands and, and, and that's all I need. That's the unmentioned view of a me-centered perspective of the Bible. But man, when you start to realize that the Bible is indeed good news, it is about not just our failures as we look in the, the mirror of God's Word, it is about one who has overcome those failures. My goodness, my heart and my mind are thirsting 
for his word because it is only in that word that I find hope. Even when the Bible condemns me and shows me how I don't measure up, I have assurance and comfort because then it tells me how Jesus measured up on my behalf. And how, yes, I am to strive to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, but I do so knowing that the pressure is not simply on me. Folks, that's the Bible. I just want to quickly take you through a couple verses here. Notice on verse 13 this story. It says, That very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. About, in other words, Jesus' crucifixion. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, <laughs> Have you ever, uh, stop there, have you ever been talking with somebody and you don't know who you're talking to and it's horribly embarrassing? Or maybe <laughs> you're talking about a situation and, and around the corner comes, comes the, uh, the, 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 the person involved in the situation um, and it's horribly embarrassing. Imagine this poor fellow named Cleopas and he's asking this to Jesus. Now, where are we? 18. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and then Jesus playing along, it says, what things? You see, as we stop there, Jesus always, I mean, just like Adam, what have you done? Jesus always gives us time to recognize for ourselves the errors of our ways. That is his mercy. What things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hopes that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. So if hope had not already run out, verse 20 says that, man, this is the third day and there is no more hope. And then verse 22, Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. So man, this makes them even more confused and even more depressed. And notice Jesus' response in verse 25. He said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, Jesus' condemnation in verse 25 implies 
that they should have known. They should have known. The disciples should have known. I mean, at the end of Jesus' ministry, he says, Are, have I been with you for this long and you're still asking me these questions? You see, biblical ignorance is no excuse. If anybody had a right to justify their lack of Bible understanding and knowledge, it was these guys. They didn't even have the completed scriptures yet. But what does he say is the source of their unbelief, their lack of understanding? That they are foolish and slow of heart to believe. Let me ask you a question. Understanding that all of the Bible is a pointer of God's great narrative, God's great story of redemption. Understanding what 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable to men. Are you in your own heart foolish and slow of heart to believe the necessity for you to be in his word? Are you so foolish and slow of heart to believe that you will be the one to first pick up a newspaper or an iPad that has the news on it than to pick up God's word as a necessity? Are you so foolish and so slow of heart to believe to be content to say, well, the pastor may know the answer to that question, but... I don't know it and I'm not really that interested in investigating it. And then we see that Jesus in Moses, in the prophets, in other words, in all of the Old Testament shows these guys. These are all of the ways that Scripture has so clearly testified what I've come to do. It's not that every verse in the Old Testament mentions Jesus. I mean, you can't find Jesus in the tent peg of a tabernacle. (laughs) But every passage of Scripture points its way to Jesus. What is your interpretation, your hermeneutic? Do you see Jesus as the hero of the Bible and the hero of your story, which is right in there with those four scenes? And as we close this morning, the final aspect to this grand story of redemption is we see the resolution. You see, the cross and resurrection brings resolution to all of the Bible. The tensions in the Bible are resolved at the cross and the empty tomb. When we looked at the doctrine of God, we saw that God is both just uh, and and will condemn, but yet he's also faithful and merciful. How do those two things come together? They come together that Jesus was willing to experience the justice, the judgment, so we could experience the mercy, the kindness, the faithfulness. We find the tension of Adam and Eve's failure, not only Adam and Eve, but we see Israel's failure, we see David's failure, we see 
Abraham's failure, all of these failures in light of the success of Jesus. We see the seeming reign and victory of Satan finds resolution at the cross and empty tomb that Jesus has declared victory. We even see the tension of our own righteousness, or I should say lack of it, in our daily living finds resolution knowing that it is Jesus' righteousness that has been credited to us. On and on it goes. The tensions in the Bible are resolved at the cross and the empty tomb. But not only that, but the questions of humanity itself are resolved at the cross and tomb. Questions such as how can a loving God send people to hell and we see the fact that it is God who has given His Son. Questions as, uh, for instance, why would a good God let bad things happen in this world and to people? We find the reality, the reality of that, that it is mankind that has brought sin into this world, that has broken this world, and it is Jesus that has come to set forth a new creation. We find the question of humanity, how do I know the Bible is true? finds resolution in an empty tomb. Look at the tomb, it is empty. How could you manufacture that? The question, how can I, why can I not trust my own heart and my own desires like culture says? Look at the fact that Jesus had to die because of the depraved heart of his people. And can there truly be a question why we can't trust our own desires and heart? The question, is this all there really is to life? Is there not something more? Indeed there is. And we find that reality because of the cross and the empty tomb. Even the age-old question, where can I find a sense of worth? It's found in the cross, the empty tomb. That at the cross and the empty tomb, as a song that, that we're going to be learning in a few weeks, the, the lyrics say that it is in Jesus that we find not only our worth, but our unworthiness. You see, all of these things tie into the reality of the salvation that God has provided. Let's pray.